Welcome to Crashing the War Party. My co-host Daniel Larson and I are here each week hoping to bring some common sense to ongoing foreign policy and national security debates. We try very hard and the voices we bring on are very strong, but there is a lot of buzzing from the hive to overcome. So this week we are observing anniversaries of two major military and geopolitical events the withdrawal of the U.S. military in Afghanistan in August 2021, and the Russian invasion of Ukraine six months ago on February 24th. We talk about the ripple effects and the shaping of the Afghanistan story a year later uh, with Adam Weinstein, a Middle East expert and combat veteran who served in Afghanistan as a U.S. Marine in the first segment today. But first, Let's talk a little bit about the new efforts to massage the profile of Secretary of State Antony Blinken for public mainstream consumption. I am referring to a rather lengthy feature in the Washington Post this week entitled, Can Antony Blinken Update Liberal Foreign Policy for a World Gone Mad? Inside the Shaping and Execution of the Biden-Blinken Doctrine by David Montgomery. At first glance, it reads like a puff piece, but a closer look reveals an attempt to polish what has been the tarnished image of the Biden administration's foreign policy over the last year and a half of his term. The nub of the effort is found in this passage, quote, in effect, Joe Biden and Tony Blinken have set out to reimagine American foreign policy and against all odds to try to save the old liberal international order by striking a new balance between these two very contradictory ideals. Those contradictory ideals being the wielding of U.S. power to spread American ideals a la the humanitarian interventionists in the Clinton-Obama era days and deploying humility and confidence to lead the world. End quote. The Blinken profile seems to have a few key goals. One is to humanize Blinken, who was a silver spoon establishmentarian who was born into the job he now inhabits. His father served as U.S. ambassador to Hungary, and his uncle, Alan Blinken, served as the U.S. ambassador to Belgium. He was schooled in Paris, graduated from both Harvard and Columbia, and started his career in democratic politics. Montgomery talks about Blinken's guitar playing and taco eating and how he has two children under the age of five. The next goal is to put the Biden-Blinken foreign policy doctrine in the context of coming into Washington at a disadvantage the post-Trump apocalypse, if you will. They had all the right intentions of restoring American credibility in the American-led order, but things happened, like the botched Afghanistan withdrawal and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So they've had to recalibrate, but their internal compasses are sound and they talk a good game, like this quote from Blinken in an interview with the author, quote, we still confront our problems openly and transparently. This goes back to the notion that at the very foundation of the country is the quest for a more perfect union. And so the acknowledgement that we're not perfect will never be, but it's in, in striving to get there that we make progress. But what continues to set us apart, despite the many challenges that we're facing and some of the travails that we find at home, is we continue to do it all out in the open, transparently. We confront it. We don't sweep things under the rug. We don't try to pretend they don't exist. Many other countries do. Montgomery, to his credit, pushes back on some of this and points out the contradictions between the humility with which Blinken professes to wield in his diplomacy and the way in which the administration has talked full-throatedly about democracies versus autocracies and the desire not to put countries in disparate blocks when they are doing just that. There seems to be a lot going on in this article, Dan, 
and uh, any attempt to explain away the fact that the Biden-Blinken doctrine, or whatever they call it, isn't much different from the last 30 years, save the tone and tenor between the Democratic internationalists and the Republican internationalists. It all seems to be attempting to put some rhyme and reason to the Blinken policy, um, where most of the last 18 months have been seen as kind of seat of the pants. What what do you think of all this? So, like you said, it it did read a lot like a puff piece uh, for the Secretary of State. It was it was definitely intended to to put a positive spin on on most, if not all, of the things that he and Biden have done over the last year and a half. Um, There's and as you say, there's a lot of talk of them reimagining and reorienting U.S. foreign policy, uh, but it's paired with the same old song and dance uh, about the liberal international order, uh, supporting democracy, uh, essentially going back to the pre-Trump status quo. And so there's there, there's a lot of rhetorical emphasis on on renewal or or change or uh, developing something uh, unlike what has come before. But, but so much of it is just the, the same old sense of restoring the way we used to do things at the start of the century uh, and hoping that that will just somehow work in a world that no longer resembles the one that we used to live in. Uh, one of the things I thought was very strange about the, the whole piece is that they talk about Lincoln and Biden's record without acknowledging the extent to which they have left huge parts of the Trump administration's legacy intact. And so you will go through this piece and you will see very few references, if any, I think, to to all of the sanctions programs that Trump put in place. Uh, and, and the fact that U.S. policy towards many of the countries that are under U.S. sanctions remain unchanged from then. And so it's, it, it, that, that, to, to, my, to my mind, that gives the game away that they're really trying to, to put this very positive spin on a record that's not very impressive. Uh, to, to make it seem like they're they're back to being the indispensable nation leading the world, uh, when in fact uh, in a lot of parts of the world, our leadership is not very efficacious, and in many places it's not wanted, uh, and and I don't think that that has that that gets acknowledged in the piece at all. Uh, there is some recognition of the relative decline of U.S. power in this talk of humility, but there's no evidence that. Biden and Blinken have any interest in scaling back the ambitions of U.S. foreign policy. And so they, they talk about humility in the sense that they're willing to cooperate with allies or cooperate with other governments to achieve certain goals, but they're not giving up on extremely ambitious and overarching goals for the whole world. Um, and given how you overstretched the U.S. is, in fact, all around the world, uh, that seems like the opposite of humility to me. It's, it's not... Uh, it's not evidence of a balance between confidence and humility. It's evidence, to my mind, of overconfidence and overreaching. And that's setting us up to, to fall, come up short in, in at least one part of the world, maybe more than one. Um, and so I, it, it struck me as a very weird kind of uh, almost cheerleading piece for the Biden administration's foreign policy when, honestly, there's not a lot to cheer about. And, I, and so I'm not really clear on on what we're supposed to take away from it, except that they want us to think that the last year and a half has been uh, sort of a triumph uh, in that they're trying to be more humble 
but but I don't see the evidence of that humility in the way that they've been acting. Yeah, I I totally agree. There's just so much going on here. Um, one of the things that strikes me about these types of pieces during Democratic administrations as are that the administrations are always treated as a complete reset in foreign policy from the administration before. So much of this article refers to this gargantuan challenge that the Blinken-Biden team had when they came in because Trump just effed everything up so badly that they had to come in as the adults in the room and reset the, the, the U.S.-led international order to be more humble, though, um, to be more uh, diplomatic, to bring allies back together again. And, you know, as somebody who's been covering these issues for more than 20 years now, it seems to me that, A, their foreign policy is not really that different from the Trump foreign policy, maybe in tone and tenor, but not in substance. And it certainly isn't that much different than the Obama administration. And the Obama administration wasn't totally different from the uh, Bush administration, except for tone and tenor. And then go back to the Clinton administration. You know, there's a thread that goes through all of these administrations, yet the mainstream media always may, wants to make it sound like this Democratic administration is brand spanking new and it's only there to reset from this terrible Republican administration before it. Oh, and I, I think there is some of that uh, in the piece in that they, they're being graded on a curve. They're being given a lot of credit simply because they come after Trump. And so yeah. anything that's not as chaotic as Trump was was and was perceived to be uh, will will automatically get higher grades, uh, even though it's not actually achieving very much. <laughs> and, and I think that and that was and that was true in the early Obama years too. Obama was given lots of credit simply for not setting things on fire right. in the way that Bush had done. And so, you know, congratulations, you're not an arsonist. I mean, that's not a huge accomplishment in itself. Uh, is, is it a welcome change? Yes, it's better not to have an arsonist running things, but. But it's also not clear that anybody is very good at putting out fires either. Um, and I mean, j just to illustrate the point, uh, I mean, one of the the issues where there was supposed to be a very clear difference between Biden and Trump was over uh, Iran policy and uh, the the issue of the nuclear deal and the U.S. reentry into the nuclear deal after Trump had left it, and and it was people assumed based on what Biden had said during the campaign, that the U.S. would re-enter the deal fairly quickly uh, and that that would represent a significant break in the way that Trump had been doing things. And as we saw over the last 18 months, it has not been a quick re-entry. Uh, there has been a lot of foot dragging, a lot of very slow walking of this process uh, to to re-enter the deal, which which may still happen, but it has been like pulling teeth to get it to happen when it, it should have been much easier and much more straightforward than it has been. And and that, I think that points to the this problem of continuity between the two administrations that we were talking about, where even on an issue where Trump was clearly in the wrong and and his policy clearly backfired and failed, it is extremely difficult, whether for political reasons or or whatever reasons you want to come up with, for Biden simply to cancel that policy, and and break with it, and so. We here we are in August of 2022, and we still aren't back in the, that deal. Uh, 
U.S. forces just bombed another Iran-backed militia in Syria as part of the tit-for-tat exchanges of fire between our forces and theirs in the Middle East. And if you didn't know what the date was, you would still think that the, the same old policy is in place. Right. Because for all intents and purposes, that policy is still in place. And it's, it's, it's maddening to think that a policy that is that objectively horrible, that, that everyone who knows this issue recognizes to be a failure, can, can just sort of endure in spite of its, its manifest uh, costs. And so it's, that, that's, I think, one of the things that's very frustrating about Biden's foreign policy. That doesn't come through at all in this piece because the, the, the purpose of the piece is to kind of hide that stuff away. Right, right. And, 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 and convince us that, uh, as you say, the, the adults are back and people know what they're doing. When I think in region after region, what we've seen with Biden foreign policy performance is that they have not executed well. They don't seem to know what they're doing, uh, whether it's at the summit of the Americas or in dealing with Southeast Asia or in dealing with Taiwan. You, you see a lot of fumbling, and and it doesn't it doesn't make sense if you believe that these establishmentarian types really are the competent and knowledgeable people that they claim to be. But you know maybe. Maybe the establishmentarians aren't all they're cracked up to be after all, and they're they don't know how to lead the u s in this new world any better than anyone else does. You know what I also find frustrating is that the biggest foreign policy issue of the day that affects the entire world is the Ukraine war, and so little of it was given. Uh, shrift in this particular feature. So we have the Secretary of State, the U.S. Secretary of State, whose job it is to enact a uh, not only a policy, but also pursue diplomacy in events such as these. We have no idea how hard or how not hard the Biden administration is working to bring an end to this war. We don't have any insight on what his diplomacy is, Anthony Blinken. And I would have loved to see that because I'm still really confused as, as to how much the United States actually is engaging in diplomacy, real diplomacy in this war. All I see are State Department uh, briefings that talk about how it's up to the Russians. Um, we can't tell the Ukra Ukrainians what to do. We're sending them more weapons. We're doing everything to um, basically help Ukraine get Russia out of their country, yada, yada. They talk like they are at Pentagon briefings, really, most of the time. What is he actually, what is his plan for bringing these two sides together to end the war? Well, and I, I think you, you hit on the, the point that there hasn't been, in terms of direct contact with the Russians, there, there hasn't been diplomacy on the U.S. side. Uh, Blinken and Lavrov, I think, have maybe spoken in passing once. I think they they may have spoken briefly at the G20 event in Bali, uh, but I don't I don't think that they've held any significant meetings. Uh, and there, there's there's been very little in the way of direct uh, contact between top diplomats or, or even middle level diplomats, as far as I know. Uh, we're, we're simply not talking to them at all, and which is which is very dangerous. On one level, because we we need to maintain lines of communication 
especially in times of conflict like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and more generally, we need to have lines of communication open in order to discuss with the Russians other issues of mutual concern, be it arms control or the negotiations over Iran or what have you. There, there are a number of issues where the Russian view is relevant and needs to be taken into account, even though we all strongly condemn what they're doing to Ukraine. And we all we all know that that is a huge impediment to making any progress on these other issues. Uh, nonetheless, there, there needs to be some effort to make progress on those other issues because those other issues also matter. I mean, for instance, uh, speaking of arms control, New START is now uh, in something uh, of a, a limbo because inspectors are no longer going to be able to uh, do their inspections because of various hangups over, I think, COVID restrictions and travel restrictions. Uh, and, and so the, the Russians have actually suspended new start inspections, which is a serious problem for enforcing the treaty. Uh, and, and the treaty itself is going to expire in 2026, and then there will be nothing to replace it. So that, that's something that can't just be left on the back burner and forgotten about. These are things that have to be kept up with and, and dealt with on a regular basis. And if we're not even talking to them, then we're certainly not going to be able to negotiate anything of value uh, in the coming years. So, so yeah, I, I think what, one of the, the striking things in this piece about Blinken is that here he is as the chief diplomat, and you don't actually see the U.S. engaging in a lot of diplomatic engagement, uh, except insofar as it involves organizing allies yeah. as part of some containment or war policy. There's there's no sense, as there was in the Obama administration, that diplomatic engagement with adversaries and rivals is in fact wise and in the best interest of the United States. Uh, it, it does seem to be viewed as sort of tainted, as something you should stay away from, uh, and and you, that you only do if you absolutely have to. You don't really want to do it. And I think that's a mistake. And I think we're seeing the deterioration of relations with Russia and China uh, resulting from that. And, I, and it's also the case that the, the negotiations with Iran have dragged on so long because we, we don't have normal relations with them. And if we did, we might be able to actually talk to them directly without having to go through intermediaries like we've been doing for 40 years. Uh, so the, these are areas where the, the phrase diplomacy is back is really belied by uh, the record that the Biden administration has laid down over the last year and a half. I'd like to welcome my friend and colleague, Adam Weinstein, to the show today. Adam served as a U.S. Marine in Afghanistan and is also an expert on the Afghanistan war, Pakistan, and the Middle East. He works as a research fellow on our Middle East program at the Quincy Institute. He's conducted numerous media interviews over the last year, and his writing and analysis has been featured in the New York Times, Washington Post, Foreign Policy, War on the Rocks, Lawfare, and the National Interest. Adam, thank you for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. Um, I know this week has been marked uh, by the one-year anniversary of the U.S. military withdrawal from Afghanistan. 
As a Marine Corps veteran of that war, I need to ask you, what are you feeling this week? Is the renewed coverage of the war stirring up feelings? And if so, what what kind? And on the other side of the coin, intellectually, how do you think the war has been framed by the media and the Washington establishment a year later? And finally, what's next for Afghanistan and for U.S. foreign policy in the region? Sorry to throw all that at you at once. (laughs) Well, on an emotional level, you know, the truth is I feel for the Afghans. Personally, I I don't feel that much. And I guess that's uh, based on my mindset that as a U.S. soldier or Marine or sailor uh, or airman, you you serve the country. You don't serve the mission. If you become wrapped up in the mission, you'll go kind of crazy. I volunteered for the military. I also volunteered for the deployment to Afghanistan specifically. I didn't have to go to Afghanistan, even though I was in the military. Um, I volunteered because I wanted to to go, but it was for my country and not for the mission. And that's an important distinction, uh, which I'll get back to in a moment. I think some vets, especially those who did multiple tours in Afghanistan, um, took it a little bit harder, and I don't blame them. But I do feel for the the people of Afghanistan. On a more intellectual level, look, it's been a year. This is going to be in the media cycle for a couple of weeks, and then it will leave the media cycle. And that's the story of the war in Afghanistan over 20 years. Uh, it would come in and come out of people's attention. Uh, and our policymakers and the general public were constantly distracted because they weren't invested. This was the military's war. It wasn't their war. And that's one of the reasons uh, that I supported the withdrawal, because I didn't feel that the country was actually invested in the conflict itself. And why would they be? It's a landlocked country of 40 million people. It's not crucial to the strategic interests of the United States. And I don't care what anyone tells you, the United States does not fight wars for humanitarian reasons. Um, what comes next? I think that's what we have to define for ourselves. Are we a nation that's only capable of engaging in this part of the world if it's through drone strikes and U.S. boots on the ground? Or can we handle difficult problems? Yes, the Taliban are intransigent. Yes, they're difficult to deal with. But we have to push forward. We have to engage in diplomacy. And we have to accept the limits of diplomacy, uh, just as we had to accept the limits of use of force. Um, You know, you you mentioned that the drop-off in coverage of the war in the U.S. and the Western media. Are you surprised at what seems to be in intention? attention to Afghanistan on the part of the U.S. government. I know that foreign policy has been hijacked right now by what's been going on in Ukraine and uh, in China over Taiwan, but are you afraid that we have just sort of written off or ended the chapter in Afghanistan and have left a, a festering wound there? Behind. Afraid but not surprised is what I would say. I think we have this pro- problem where the pendulum swings from one extreme to the next. For 20 years, Afghanistan preoccupied too much space on the table of the white, the president in the White House in the Oval Office. And, and now it, it takes up too little space. We have to find a middle ground. Uh, this goes back to what I'm saying. Are we capable as a nation to engage with this part of the world if we do not have boots on the ground? And that the, the answer to that question, uh, I guess, will come in, in, in future years. Uh, I'm also not surprised that there's been a disengagement because, again, Afghanistan did not uh, touch on the vital interests of the United States and it never had the attention of U.S. policymakers or the general public. That's why I supported the withdrawal. 
the U.S. military can't just be thrown at problems indefinitely while the rest of the country disengages. The country didn't disengage the day the last U.S. soldier uh, boarded a plane out of Kabul. The country had been disengaged for years. Yeah, that's totally true. I just want to ask you one more question before I pass it over to Dan. You know, I just read the um, the biography of Stuart Scheller, who had resigned his commission and was kicked out of the Marines over these YouTube postings that he had published right after uh, the explosion outside of the Kabul airport one year ago this week. And, you know, he has some really general but very pointed critiques of the military as an institution, um, the, the Iraq, um, the Afghan war writ large, uh, the senior officer corps. And it seems as though that in this case, not only in this case, but veterans today are very reflective of their service and of the foreign policy and the, the military policy that sent them to this war and engaged it for 20 years. Do you feel as a veteran that there has been a lasting impact on um, the, the services, the willingness to serve, how veterans feel about their service because of the failures of this war to actually end it in a way where you feel like we won, that we made the world a better place to live in, that Afghans are living in a thriving democracy. You know, what is the impact on military service going forward? Well, look, the polling I've seen suggests that the military is having trouble recruiting, uh, and there's various reasons for that probably including disillusionment with U.S. foreign policy. And if you look at polling from Gen Z, they're disillusioned with U.S. foreign policy. That being said, I was a young, dumb Marine. I actually say that with pride. That's, you know, it's a good thing. There will always be young, dumb Marines. And I'm saying that as a positive thing, who are willing to give their country the benefit of the doubt and charge forward. And that's what our military relies upon. What's important is that our policymakers and our leaders don't abuse that youthful energy. When when an 18-year-old raises their right hand and says, I want to serve my country, and wherever you tell me to go in the world, I'll go. And whatever building you tell me to enter, I'll enter. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm making out my will at 18 years old. Well, that should not be abused by our leaders and policymakers. Uh, that is the backbone of the military, that youthful energy and passion and, and love of country and um, desire for adventure. Uh, but of course, yeah, the legacy of these wars is going to have an effect on how young people view the military. Definitely. And unfortunately, that's that's been the case now going on uh, 20 years, as we've seen. Uh, Adam, thanks very much for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Um, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, of course. And uh, looking ahead, uh, you, you wrote a recent brief on Afghanistan and U.S. policy for the Quincy Institute, uh, thinking about where U.S. policy could go uh, from here on out. And you discuss the impact the sanctions on the Taliban have had on the entire country. You write, nevertheless, the chilling effect of U.S. sanctions and a Taliban-led government have hadn't have an effect subjected the country to comprehensive sanctions. Few countries or private sector entities have enough political or economic interest in Afghanistan's economy to outweigh potential risks. Uh, how can the U.S. begin to remedy the harmful effects that its sanctions are having on the Afghan people? And what else can be done beyond sanctions relief to address the country's deepening humanitarian crisis? 
Well, first and foremost, I want to say that ultimately the Taliban have the most agency. If the Taliban had en mm-hmm. enacted better policies, Afghanistan would be a better in position and it would it would give the Biden administration more room to kind of alleviate the pain of sanctions and maybe even lift them. That being right. said, I don't think we can use the Taliban's bad behavior as an excuse to just punish the Afghan people. This is an unprecedented sanction situation. We had sanctions on the Taliban and the Haqqani network as terrorist organizations, and then overnight they became the leaders of the country. And so what sometimes happens is that the Treasury Department or lawyers get bogged down in technicalities, and they say, well, technically it's not subjected to comprehensive sanctions. You could do business. Okay, you can do business so long as you don't, none of that money touches the Taliban. And so finally, they realized, okay, that's absurd. We understand. So we're going to issue a general license. And what general licenses are, are exemptions or exceptions to sanctions. And so they issued seven general licenses. And they allow activity ranging from aid to certain types of commercial activity to remittances. But there's a chilling effect because, first of all, like I said before, Afghanistan's not a, um, it's simply not that great of a business environment or an investment opportunity. And you add on top of that sanctions risk, well, what are corporations going to do? The example I always give to folks to make it more understandable or personal to everyday people who aren't corporations uh, is one of the general licenses allows you to send remittances to Afghanistan. So I can go to a Western Union and I can send $500 to someone in Afghanistan. But to be in compliance with that general license and not violate U.S. sanctions, I have to guarantee that that Afghan who's receiving my money isn't going to use it for a small business. They're not going to use it to run a bakery. They're not going to use it to buy a taxi. I wouldn't feel comfortable sending $500 to Afghanistan right now as, as, as Adam Weinstein. So why would corporations feel comfortable doing that? Um, this is the chilling effect of sanctions. The best thing the United States could do would be to admit that the sanctions aren't altering Taliban behavior, they're not serving their purpose, and to lift the sanctions. That's probably not going to happen. The next best thing they could do would be to issue even more general licenses, more FAQs, which are the frequently asked questions section sections that explain what the general licenses do, uh, publish comfort letters. So sometimes they'll send comfort letters to specific entities that are asking, hey, can I do X, Y, Z? and still be in compliance with U.S. sanctions, publish those letters. If you have to redact the private details of that company um, so you don't air their business to the world, that's fine. But publish the, the gist of the letter so that people in similar situations know that they can do that and encourage people to apply for specific licenses. Specific licenses are, I want to do this very specific thing in Afghanistan. Can I have special permission just for me to do that? Encourage banks to do that. And use, you know, use the newspapers, use, you know, go on record in the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal and say, there's nothing that stops a bank from doing this kind of transaction in Afghanistan. But as some people have pointed out, it's a feature and not a bug. The chilling effect is a feature and not a bug of U.S. sanctions. And in the case of Afghanistan, uh, I, I think it's just uh, reprehensible that we, we would be allowing the chilling effect to go forward. Sure. And just one last quick question, as I think we're almost out of time. Uh, one of the other suggestions you make is that the U.S. should establish an interest section to maintain a diplomatic presence in Afghanistan. Uh, quickly, what are the advantages of doing that? Well, number one, it gives us a reason to have eyes on the ground. Um, number two, it allows us to deal directly with the people of Afghanistan, including the former interpreters who we need to get out. 
Number three, it allows us to meet with the Taliban figures who matter, not just the ones they're willing to send to Doha or the ones they're willing to send to some international conference who might not be decision makers. If you're sitting in Kabul, you can meet with decision makers. And by the way, it's good for the administration, too, because every time the U.S. administration goes and meets with the Taliban, the Biden administration goes and meets with the Taliban in Doha or in Tashkent or wherever, it becomes a huge photo opportunity and media frenzy. If they were sitting in Kabul, if we had diplomats sitting in Kabul, they could quietly meet with key Taliban decision makers and try to influence their behavior that way. A lot of people say, hey, won't that legitimize the Taliban? Well, our closest allies are already doing it, and I don't think they think they're legitimizing the Taliban. Um, we have a precedent ourselves of doing it. We had an interest section in, in Cuba. We had, you know, we, we in, in other countries, and we had U.S. diplomats in Cuba, by the way, at the height of tensions. Um, so there's other examples. Um, but it, it, it's it's important. I think it actually legitimizes the Taliban more to be rolling out the red carpet for them at Oslo or at Tashkent or at Doha and meeting with them in these grand reception halls of fancy hotels. No, let our U.S. diplomats land in Kabul, drive through Kabul, see Afghans begging for bread on the streets, and then go meet with the Taliban in some lavish palace and have the Taliban explain to them why this is the case. Um, it doesn't mean that things are going to change overnight, but I fundamentally believe in talking to our enemies. And the Taliban themselves has said they would welcome U.S. diplomats. Is there a security risk? Yes. And I understand that the State Department has a lot of fear in the post-Benghazi world. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, America needs deci to decide, uh, you know, are we going to let fear dictate our ability to conduct diplomacy? I, I don't think we should. Well, thank you so much, Adam, for, for coming on the show and sharing that with us. You have this unique perspective of having an historical um, view of what's happened in the war. You've served there, but you've also been paying attention to what has been happening over the last year with the sanctions and the humanitarian crisis that is ensuing. And so I'm, I really appreciate you coming on uh, to share all of that and hope help you'll come back. Uh, thanks for having me. And and look, if I could add one thing, all of these are small pieces to the puzzle and none of them are going to make a dramatic difference on their own. But in the aggregate, we can begin to see a difference. And we're going to have to measure things by decades, not years, which is not something that U.S. foreign policy is accustomed to. And that's going to be the difficulty ahead. Well, thank you. And uh, will you come back and uh, maybe a year from now and, and see how it's going? Well, I hope you bring me back even before a year from Sooner now. I think there's yes. plenty to talk about. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack, at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time. <laughs>